Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 11 as we get into God's Word together. Uh, last week, we saw Jesus ride into Jerusalem as a king, uh, but he did it in a very uncharacteristic way. He came in on a donkey, uh, not a big war horse like you would think kings would come in on. And Jesus wanted us to see that he is both majestic and at the same time humble. Uh, he's also telling us that he's the one that's referred to in Zechariah uh, chapter 9 and verse 9. He's the, the king, the good king who makes all things right. He's a humble king riding in on a donkey. Um, but Jesus is saying, hey, I, I'm a king, but I'm not one that fits your idea, the world's idea of a king. It's a little like the vision uh, that John had of Jesus in Revelation chapter 5. When he says, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. And John is told to look for a lion, but he sees a lamb on the throne in Revelation 6. And, and Jesus is, is both the lion and a lamb. And, and a lion has strength in his appearance and, and his voice roars. A, a lamb is not so intimidating with his voice and, and, and gives his life, so to speak, for, for our food and clothing, not like a lion. In, in C.S. Lewis' uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, one of the books of the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, Lucy and Edmund are off on an adventure, and they come to a beautiful, green, grassy area. And all they see is green and the sky of blue, except for one white dot. And they walk toward the dot, and they see that it's a lamb. And as you know, in, in Narnia, the animals talk. And so this lamb is explaining to them how they can have salvation, the way to salvation, and, and made, made them this incredible breakfast. And so uh, as, as they're sitting there, Lucy and Edmund uh, say this crazy thing happens. And, and here's the way Lewis describes it. His, this is talking about the lamb, his snowy white flushed into tawny gold and his size changed and he was Aslan, the lion, himself towering above them and scattering light from his mane. The lion is the lamb. He is the lamb of God. That's what he was illustrating. In biblical terms, we could say the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Qualities we consider to be lamb-like, gentleness and, and meekness, are exactly who Christ is. But so are regalness. And, and the ferocity of a lion, the unpredictability of a lion. Our Savior, and this is on your outline, our Savior is also our judge. And the scriptures speak of the wrath of the lamb. John Piper puts it like this. You have the quote on your outline. In Jesus Christ meets infinite highness and infinite condescension, infinite justice and infinite grace. Infinite glory and lowest humility, infinite majesty and transcendent meekness, deepest reverence toward God and equality with God. 
worthiness of good and the greatest patience under the suffering of evil. A great spirit of obedience and supreme dominion over heaven and earth. Absolute sovereignty and perfect resignation. Self-sufficiency and entire trust and reliance on God. That's our Jesus. So with that in mind, let's read our passage. Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said, Jesus, uh, said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus said. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in, the, in their heart, but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your faith in heaven, so that your father in heaven may forgive your sins. This is God's word. So look at the next paragraph you have on your outline. Um, So by dividing the cursing of the fig tree in verses 12 and 14 from the withering Verses 20 to 21. So it's kind of sandwiched. Think about that in between. So uh, on, on either end of the, of the clearing of the temple. Uh, so Mark does not want us to miss the connection between the barren fig tree, which is symbolic for Israel, and the barren temple. Both events were like acted out parables of God's judgment on Jerusalem and the temple. Because Israel had proven to be fruitless, like the fig tree, God is extending his kingdom to every corner of the globe, to any who receive the gospel in childlike trust in in Jesus. So, and again, on your outline, we think of the triumphal entry as marking the beginning of Holy Week, but it was also the beginning of judgment. Judgment was coming down on on Israel for their lack of faithfulness. Jesus is the lion and the lamb. 
But in these verses, we see him more like the lion who roars at the lack of fruit on the fig tree and the total corruption that was going on in the temple. And Jesus would not have that. So he is the judge as well. And so the first thing we're going to look at is the cursing of the fig tree. Uh, so like a sandwich, like I said, uh, it's going to be from in verses 12 and 14, and then also in verses 20 to 26. So we'll look at these together, and then we'll come back and look at that middle section at the end, the clearing of the, of the temple. So I'm not an expert on fig trees. However, um, I like eating them fresh off the, the tree when Ferd brings them to us here. So, um, but apparently fig trees produce leaves in March or April, and then the fruit comes in June. And it can also come a second time in August. And sometimes even their crop uh, will bear some fruit in December. So the presence of the leaves could mean that fruit, were the, were the fruit was there. But look at verse 13. Seeing in the distance of fig tree and leaf, Jesus went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves. So I think it's significant in this instance that Jesus didn't have special knowledge of, of the tree and uh, to guide him. So he had to go and examine it himself. Uh, so remember, Jesus was 100% human and 100% divine. Uh, he had the power to restore the tree. He could have instantly produced fruit on the tree, but he cursed the fig tree instead because there were two important lessons that he wanted to teach the disciples. So the first thing that stands out to me about the curse of the fig tree is, and this is on your outline, is that impressive religious performance does not mean our lives are right with God. Our lives can be full of activity, but like Israel, Israel had failed to be fruitful for God. And their focus had become about externally keeping the law when God wanted their hearts. Jesus was giving them a living parable, if you will, against hollow religiosity. Don't be just religious. It's about a relationship with me. And this is what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 29. And he says, and so the Lord says, these people say they are mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. Interestingly enough, three years earlier, John the Baptist had warned against this. Uh, but the religious leaders didn't listen to his message. John was talking to them when he said this in Matthew chapter 3. Even now the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. John the Baptist said to the Pharisees and the scribes, yes, every tree, John continues, that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. So severing the roots of the tree, that was Israel. And, and when, whenever someone dries up spiritually, it's usually at the roots. Look at verse 20. It, it withers from the roots. Israel had dried up from the roots. And the religious leaders didn't listen to John. And the religious leaders didn't listen to Jesus either. Fruit is a direct result of whatever controls our heart. So what controls your heart? Who controls your heart? If the Holy Spirit is in your life, the result will be the fruit of the Spirit. 
And what Jesus is saying is if you don't have fruit in your life, you will be judged. So if that's the case, it's essential for us to know what kind of fruit he's talking about. What what kind of fruit needs to be in our lives? Well, the fruit of the Spirit is the most obvious. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As Christians, over time, these, these, all of these things should be growing in our lives. When, when Christ lives in us, we seek to be obedient to his word. We want that. And our choices, hopefully, will start to make us look like Jesus. That's God's goal for us, to look like his son, Jesus. And Jesus did say that his followers would be recognized by their fruit. In in Matthew 7, he says, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Thus, by your fruit, you will recognize them. And so that's how we're recognized as believers is by the way we live our lives, by the fruit of our lives. And so other than the fruit of the spirit, a lot of other ways that we can be, there are a lot of other ways that we can be fruitful as Christians. Uh, And this is on your outline, our lives are to be characterized by the fruit of good works and and humility and forgiveness. And and like an apple tree bears apples, a Christian bears other Christians. Like Jesus says in John chapter 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you could go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that when whatever you ask in, in my name, the Father will give you. So in other words, we have to be intentional about when we meet people who are not believers, to be a link in the chain that brings them closer to a relationship with God. Maybe sometimes we'll be the final link. Maybe oftentimes I think we'll be just a link along the way that that eventually will lead them to a relationship with Jesus. So the pressure is not on us to lead someone to Christ. The the pressure, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's God's work. But we are to be a link in the chain and so it's a little bit like we see someone and we go, okay, Lord, I don't know where they're at spiritually, but will you help me just move them a little bit closer to you as, as in this conversation as we talk? And then the next thing that struck me in the curse of the fig tree is that, and this is on your outline, when life looks bleak and frightening, faith in God sustains us. That's what keeps us going. Jesus also used this miracle to teach this lesson on faith. The next morning, the, the disciples see this dead tree and look at verse 22. How does Jesus respond? Have faith in God. So what does that have to do with the fig tree? And well, He's saying you need to constantly be trusting God. That's how fruit grows in your life. You live in, on an attitude of dependence on God. That's how fruit grows in your life. I, I love Philip Yancey's definition of faith. He says faith is paranoia in reverse. Think about that. Have you ever played laser tag? I don't know if you don't have to show hands, but if you've played, I've played laser tag with my kids. And you know, the the, the people who are in the, the little place where you go to play laser tag give you all these instructions and stuff. And everybody seems like it's fun and having a good time. But uh, I can tell you that once you go inside that room, everyone wants to kill you. I, even my own kids. And I became paranoid. I, I became paranoid by doing that. And that's paranoia. 
And so faith is paranoia in reverse. In other words, a simple definition of faith, and this is on your outline, is that faith believes God is good. He is not out to get you. You don't have to be looking behind your back all the time saying, God's going to crush me here. No, he's on your side. He's for you. He's not against you. And so faith is paranoia in reverse. Sometimes we're tempted to, to look at what we're going through and we think, wow, if this is the path you have for me, God, what I'm going through in my life right now, what my family's going through, I don't like this. I'm not very happy about this. And so, Lord, in fact, I hate this. But as you look back, you see God's hand. And you have to remember that God is for you. He is not against you. That's what faith is. That's the lesson that we can learn from this fig tree. And then, so then he turns to, naturally, when you talk about faith, I think, Uh, it leads to a discussion of prayer and talking with God. That's part of the relationship we have with God. And so real prayer is, is, is constant communion with God. It's worship of God. It's not just something that we use in an emergency. It's something that we daily have. We live in, in communion with God. And Jesus here in this, and again, we're looking at this on, on the front and the back ends of this passage. We haven't dealt with the middle yet. We're going to come back to that. So Jesus gives us three conditions here for effective petitions to God. Uh, And before all, really, they have to do with trust. They have to do with faith. And so the first one on your outline is that to pray without doubting God's power or goodness. We don't doubt God's power. We assume his power. And we assume his goodness. Look at verse 23. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Now what this doesn't mean is that if you pray hard enough, it will be done for you. That's faith in prayer. That's faith in faith. That's not faith in God. So it's not about you feeling hard enough or just imagining it hard enough it's going to come to pass. Uh, In Jewish imagery, a mountain signified something that was immovable, like a problem in front of us. And I I know I've talked to enough of you often enough to know that just about everybody has problems that are in front of us that seem immovable. And so the only way to move these mountains, Jesus is saying, is through prayer. Through faith, by trusting God. So no matter what barrier confronts you right now that you think, I need this barrier to be taken care of to move forward in my relationship with God, to move forward in life, it can be overcome with prayer. That's what Jesus is saying here. God will answer. God answers our prayers. Not because you have a positive mental attitude, but because he hears our prayers, he invites us to come boldly before the throne of grace with our requests. And the second one is that we pray with an acceptance that God's power and goodness has accomplished what you ask. So when we pray, we submit ourselves to the sovereignty of God. We say, God, you're sovereign. I I, I want what you want for me. And so 
Look at verse 24. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And then verse 25, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your father in heaven may forgive you. So the next one really should be a bullet point, but it's, it's on your outline. Disharmony with others will hinder our prayers. That's another lesson that we learn here. Disharmony with others will hinder our prayers. You know, I've counseled people that have held on to grudges for years, even decades. And the person that offended them forgot about it probably years before or decades before. They haven't given it a second thought. But it's holding this person down so they can't move forward in their lives. And the other person, again, may not even, it's not affecting them at all, but it's really impacting this other person. And so, again, we, we just need to remind ourselves what God has forgiven us. If we go to the cross, we remember how much he has forgiven my sin. One of my favorite authors is Frederick Buechner. Uh, that's how you pronounce his name. And he has this quote that's on the outline. Uh, and it says this, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. <laughs> to lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. So we don't have, there's, life is short enough. Why spend it being bitter and angry and unforgiving? This is the characteristic of one of, of, of Christ's followers is forgiveness this isn't the only lesson, by the way, that Jesus taught about prayer. He taught a lot about prayer. And so we can never isolate verses from themselves. Uh, the Bible is its own best commentary. And so we need to understand what else scripture teaches us about prayer. For example, that prayer must be in the will of God. That, that one praying must be abiding in the love of God. But the point that Jesus is making here, which I think is so important, and this is on your outline, is that true prayer involves forgiveness. True prayer involves forgiveness. You're having a hard time forgiving someone, pray for them. It won't be, you won't be able to hold on to that unforgiveness long if you're praying for them. We don't earn God's blessing by forgiving one another, that we need to be clear about that as well. But a forgiving spirit is one evidence that the Holy Spirit resides in us, that we're walking with God, that we want to obey his will. I have faith in God. If I have faith in God, then I'm also going to love my brother. That's what John says. You want to read about that, read about it in John. He mentions love like 40 times and defines what love is and what love should be like. The gospel is all about trading in guilt for forgiveness. You know, you need to forgive yourself as well, not just forgive others, but you need to forgive yourself. I heard a Christian psychiatrist one time who was describing the patients he sees, and he said this, 90% of the patients that come to my practice are people dealing with unresolved guilt. They don't need a psychiatrist 
They need someone to lead them to Christ. They need to hear about grace and forgiveness. So when it comes to prayer, are you praying? Are you talking with God on a regular basis? Daily, a time of prayer, but then also a, a t- to pray to God and, and have a, a conversation with God throughout the day? Are you doing both of those? Do you believe that God has the power to answer your prayer, to do a miracle in your life? He can. Do you expect God to answer your prayer? And is unforgiveness standing in the way of you having an effective prayer life? If it is, take it to the Lord. Don't let the sun go down tonight without you forgiving the people that you need to forgive. Imagine it on the cross. Focus on that, on that sin on the cross and, and, and realize the blood of Jesus covers that sin that you're having a hard time forgiving. And it covers your sin. And so you need to be forgiving of yourself, but also of others around you that you feel have offended you. Maybe you know have offended you greatly. Okay, now we get to the second event, the one in the middle of the passages, the verses that we've looked at. And that's the cleansing of the temple in verses 15 and 19. This is, again, sandwiched in between the other two. Mark does that a couple times. So there are also some important lessons that we can learn from the cleansing of the temple. And the number one lesson is this. Purge your life of the external things that keep you from a true relationship with God. There are lots of externals, lots of busyness in our lives. All of us. That's what life is like for Americans today. There's a lot of busyness. But don't let the busyness distract you from what is most important. When Jesus walked into the temple area, he would have immediately seen thousands of people buying and selling animals, trading uh, currency, foreign currency, the money changers that were there. It would have been all kinds of activity. The first century historian, Jewish historian, Josephus, describes what Passover, and he says this, he says, in one Passover week, one year, 25,000 lambs were bought and sold and sacrificed in the temple courts. So he's a first century historian. He, he was there to see it himself. So when Jesus walks in to this place, it's not quiet and meditative. It is noisy. Think of noise where you want to cover your ears. And it was bloody. 25,000 lambs that were sold and then sacrificed. You know, there's only one group of people that are still allowed to sacrifice lambs legally today in Israel, and it's the Samaritans. You can go online, you can go on YouTube, and uh, I, I think Google, uh, or yeah, go on YouTube and look, at, look for Samaritans and lambs sacrificed, and you can see video of it. I've seen video of it. It's not pretty. That's what Jesus was coming into. This, this was probably nothing compared to the activity Again, that was, uh, that was when, what, what we think of, it's even think of more because it was a crazy time. Jesus walked into a place that was religiously very busy. This outer court was the only place where the Gentiles could go. And, and they were, that was the only place where they were allowed. And this is where the Gentiles were supposed to find God. 
This is where they were supposed to be praying. This was their avenue to get to God. But but the, the opposite was happening in the name of religion. Nobody was praying. There was a lot of noise. There were a lot of transactions. Everything was going on. There was no spiritual life. And Jesus is saying, when, 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 when he's in your life, there has to be more than just busyness. You know, we all do great things for God. And so I'm not trying to discourage you doing things for the Lord and serving him. In the least, I'm not trying to do that. But we need to make sure that our lives are not so distracted by the busyness that we forget the relationship that we have with God. And, and he's after our hearts. He's after the Christ-likeness in our lives. And so we need to re- always remember that. Uh, are we turning our fears over to the Lord? Are we turning our anxieties over to him? Are, are the fruit of the Spirit really developing in our lives? Jesus had cleansed the temple before. Back in John chapter 2, there, was, there were two cleansings of the temple. But the results had been temporary because it wasn't long before the religious leaders permitted the the people, the money changers and the merchants to return uh, back to the courts. And their justification, it was easy for them to justify it. They were like the priests get their share of the profits. So it it was motivated by them getting some money from it. But also it was a convenience to the Jews. Can you imagine a Jew coming and bringing a lamb from far away and then realize that once they get there that it has a blemish on it and it's not worth sacrificing because the, the sacrificial lambs had to be without blemish. And the money rates were always changing. And so the men exchanged currencies uh, and they were doing this. They were doing everyone a favor by doing this. And even the merchants were making a profit. So everybody was profiting from it. It was easy to rationalize the whole thing that was going on. The religious market of activity was set up in this court of the Gentiles. And that was the one place even the Jews should have been out talking with them about God. That's what should have been happening. But instead, it was, it was a place of, 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 of exchange. It was a place where they bought and sold things. And that was not what they wanted. It was not what God had in mind when he created the temple. The court of the Gentiles should have been a place at the least for praying. In, in verse 15, Mark, Mark makes a point of mentioning those selling doves. And the dove was one of the few sacrifices that the poorest of the poor could buy to sacrifice. That's what Jesus' parents bought to sacrifice when they came to dedicate him. And so it must have really grieved the Lord because he was always concerned about the poor. And Mark mentions that in particular. Jesus knows the sacrifice that that he himself would would become the sacrificial lamb. And yet now here, he's showing that he's the lion and he's not happy with what's going on. And so Jesus starts throwing furniture and tables over and and, and they come to him and they say, what's going on here? What are you doing this for? And look at verse 17. My house should be a house of prayer for the Gentiles, for all the nations. And so this is our uh, a great missionary verse. This is, this is like you need to now go out to, the, to all the, the ends of the earth and preach the gospel. And, and Jesus says, you've turned this into a den of robbers in verse 17. And a den of robbers was a place where thieves would go to hide when they thought they were being chased. 
And the chief priests and the scribes are using the temple and it's kind of as a cover-up for their sin and their hypocrisy. And so we need to ask the question of ourselves, Lord, help me not be a hypocrite who says one thing and then does another. And in a sense, we're all hypocrites because we know the right thing to do and we don't always do the right thing. You know, if somebody says, well, Christianity is just a crutch for you, my response is, you know what? It's way more than that. It's a life support system. It's a ventilator. I need it or I will die. And then in verse 18, we're told that it was, this absolutely shocked the listeners. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. And they, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. So what was so shocking? The Jews believed the Messiah would show up and he would purge the temple of foreigners. That's what the Jews thought. And here Jesus is being an advocate for them. This is why it was so shocking for him. Jesus quotes two passages when he says this in Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. And, and what Jesus was doing and, and what the prophets were doing is exposing the, they were saying the physical temple is no guarantee of God's favor. That's what the prophets were saying. And so Jesus is exposing the sins of the leaders. God was looking at their hearts. And according to Jesus' words, what he saw, he didn't like. And this is a great reminder of us to remember that, that to not be just about all this activity, to, to take time for our own heart and our heart relationship with God and spending time with him. True prayer is a sacrifice to God. Psalm 141 says, oh Lord, I'm calling to you. Please hurry. Listen when I cry to you for help. Accept my prayer as an incense offered to you and my upraised hands as an evening offering. So you want to make a sacrifice to God? Pray, talk with him. God wanted the leaders to be spiritual leaders. And the reality is that they were promoting a religion that was cluttered with rules and regulations. And so we, we continually have to focus and refocus on the grace of God. So you know, do you know where the temple starts? Uh, it starts in the Garden of Eden because the Garden of Eden was a sanctuary. And, and the presence of God was there. And in the presence of God, there was perfect peace and, and love and joy. And that was the sanctuary that Adam and Eve had. But then they, they decide to build their lives around other things other than God, and they lost the sanctuary. Adam and Eve got put out of the Garden of Eden. They got put out of the presence of God, out of their sanctuary. And they turned around, and do you remember what they saw? It's, it's, on, your, it's on your outline in Genesis 3.24. tells us, after sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So what's that about? So like Adam and Eve lost focus of God, again, that's so easy to do. Don't, we all know that, right? It's easy to lose focus of God. And, and what, what, when we think of a power or money or nationality or race or family, anything can get in the way 
of our relationship with God. And turning from God has horrible consequences. We all know that. We're all sinners, saved by grace, but we're all sinners nonetheless. And in the middle of the, of the temple of the Holy of Holies, there was, that's what there was there. It was a cube with a thick veil around the Holy of Holies. And it was called, it was, it, what was in the, the, inside the Holy of Holies was called the Shekinah presence of God, the holy presence of God. And once a year, the high priest could go inside on Yom Kippur, but only, he could only go inside and just for a short time if he carried a blood sacrifice. It's the only way he could go in there. And that was to deal with the horrible consequences of our sin. And so, why? Because there was no way to go back to the presence of God, like it says in Genesis 3.24, without going under the sword. And we can't miss this, that the sword in Genesis 3.24 was symbolic for the atoning work that had to happen ultimately by Christ. And so the question remained, how are we ever going to get to paradise? How are we ever going to get back to the presence of God? And through Old Testament history, nobody could figure out what to do with the sword. But in spite of that, the Old Testament prophets kept saying that there will be a day coming when the glory of God will cover the earth. And they just didn't know how it was going to happen. And we know that it's the Messiah that brought back the glory of God. You've got this on your, on your outline. The Messiah would be the ultimate priest. And so Jesus is the, he's our high priest. Jesus is the temple, if you will. He's going to mediate to the presence of God, us between us and God. There's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So what about the sword? Well, John writes this in the book of Revelation that he saw on the throne of the universe, like we said at the beginning, a slaughtered lamb. Why? Because that's the greatest triumph of a king ever. Jesus went under the sword. Jesus took the sword for you and he took the sword for me so that we could have eternal life, so that we could have abundant life in him. And the moment Jesus dies, remember what happens? Says it in Matthew 27, at the moment, the moment Jesus died, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. From top to bottom. Why? Because now through Jesus, we have direct access to God. We go directly to him. And that made the temple obsolete. And when you trust Christ, the power of the presence of God comes into your life through the Holy Spirit. And someday he is coming back and the power of his presence will spread throughout the whole world. And it's even beginning to happen through our missionaries as we send them out to, to share the gospel. So, man, there's just so much in this passage, and I do hope that you'll spend a little time today talking about it. Maybe go over the questions in the, the back of the daily meditations in, that are attached to the outline, but spend some time thinking about this. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Thank you for giving us, in particular, the gospel of Mark. We thank you for what Jesus has already done in our lives and we pray that his character might be reproduced in us more every day. 
We ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would help us to apply these verses that we've looked at into our lives. And if there's someone here who doesn't know you personally, and they sense a, a, a tug on their heart, I know that that's you drawing them to yourself. And I pray that they would respond in, to you in faith and open up their heart to you right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you all. Isn't it great to have, again, everybody here? It's great to have you all here and be together. Uh, you know, just before the benediction, I want to announce some new members. And uh, since everybody's standing, I'll just have them kind of lift their hand up high. So uh, these are folks that have completed everything for the membership class. We do have uh, three of these folks and one other person that's going to be baptized right after the second service. So we want to invite you to come back and join us for that time. But as I call your name, we'll hold the applause till the end. And, but uh, Peter Appel, so uh, Brandon Barrent, Abby Bishop, uh, Noe Dizon, Jonah Dimitru and Ruth Dimitru, brother and sister, and also Brooke Howway, which is Jonah's fiance. Uh, Tara Fitzpatrick and Thomas Fitzpatrick, uh, Ari Franco, Derek uh, Goraspi, Bart Harmon and Sandy Harmon, uh, Richard Moomjian and Shelby Moomjian, Miok Park, Branson Reagan, Natalie Ruiz, Gabe Simpson, and Sunshine Wilson. Let's welcome him into our family. And maybe you can find one of them and welcome him personally, but if not, at least introduce yourself to a couple new people uh, before you leave. So now may the God of peace equip you with all you need for doing his will. May he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him. All glory to him forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.